Frank Omaha, Pickney Kid, Rockdale Pearls with passive ability to launch Hilo ASAP. Oh, it's getting close. Oh, oh splash. 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 Mark Varian Rage. Eyes up. Earlier this summer, a blockbuster movie. Not quite. It was a nine-page report from the U.S. Director of National Intelligence. It chronicled 144 encounters between military pilots and unidentified aerial phenomena, or UAP. Many of these extraordinary objects defy scientific explanation. What are the fantastical possibilities for UAP? Have pilgrims from other planets or other dimensions ventured to our own? And how do we as Christians apply a biblical worldview to these possibilities? This is Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com, where we explore the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond, and apply the meanings of these stories to the real world that Jesus calls us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of lorehaven.com, and also the co-author of a nonfiction book about fiction called The Pop Culture Parent. I'm Zachary Russell, and since I am more than a physical body, you could call me an extra-dimensional being. And this is episode 73, Does the Pentagon's UFO Report Expose Unidentified Aerial Phenomena? It's the latest installment in our Armies of the Aliens series. We're joined today by a special guest who's no stranger to high strangeness, Colin Samuel. Colin is the pastor of Great Basin Reformed Presbyterian Church in Reno, Nevada. Colin has appeared on several other podcasts to talk about the spiritual implications of UFOs. He and I have also joined forces on UFO Twitter to represent a Christian perspective to others. Welcome, Colin. Hey there. It's good to be here. Reformed bro fist bump across the screen there, Colin. (laughs) I am very curious how someone with your pastoral pedigree has picked up an interest in the topic of unidentified aerial phenomena, woo, or unidentified flying objects, double woo. Uh, (laughs) Well, uh, my interest in it is actually nothing new. It is tied to my background from before I was a Christian. Before I came to Christ back in 2005, I was heavily involved with the New Age movement and sort of with Eastern philosophy, all of that. It all kind of melds into one thing. And with that, I I had a fascination with unidentified flying objects, conspiracies, uh, the, the idea that there's other realms, other dimensions to reality. And of course, whenever you get mixed up with the New Age movement, there's that desire to want to have contact uh, with other entities. And a, a big part of that, believe it or not, in New Age circles is, is a desire to contact extraterrestrial beings um, or those who are associated with the UFO phenomenon. So that was something that I was into for a few years. It was a subject I was interested in as a kid, uh, being raised, for the most part, secular, uh, that is, with no religious upbringing. Uh, the, the one thing that was sort of in the back of my mind that was weird, that I thought could most likely be true, was the whole UFO subject. Of course, with the 90s, uh, with shows like Sightings and X-Files and all of that, um, that, that sort of piqued my curiosity. And then later... Again, when I got into the U.S. or the the New Age movement, um, then it became became a much more intense interest. So that that's the origin of how I got interested in this. So it was from before I was a Christian, and then after I was converted, it was a subject that I continued to keep an eye on. 
since I was sort of vested in it, having previously been wrapped up in it. And I saw it becoming more and more mainstream. And then especially since 2016, 2017, with that New York Times article that was put out in December of 2017, Tom DeLong with his whole project that he announced, all of that really grabbed my attention because based off my previous experience, looking into the subject, uh, knowing what is and isn't credible, what is and isn't something to keep an eye on. When I saw what Tom was doing, when I saw the New York Times then putting out an article with all of his people that he had recruited, uh, I said, well, this is something that's probably going to go mainstream. This is going to be something that might be that push for disclosure that uh, people in UFO circles have been longing for for decades. Well, yeah, and I appreciate that you mentioned Tom DeLong because you know people, most people know him as the Blink One Eighty Two uh, lead singer, but he's also now a fiction author. He's written several novels about UFO disclosure, and so those are kind of working their way through the culture. And he's making short films and movies, so you know he's he's very much a culture creator. Uh, he just happens to use the UFO topic as sort of his. Uh, his main vehicle there. But, you know, Colin, I, I appreciate, uh, we, I guess we met about nine months ago through Jeff Wright, a mutual friend, and we, we've had so many chats about all this. And what I appreciated from the very beginning getting to talk to you is how, you know, you and I both saw the same thing, that there are some really serious implications for the church because, you know, this has always been a fringe topic in our culture for 70 years, but now it's becoming a mainstream topic. It's been in every major media outlet, every newspaper, not just the tabloids, you know, it, it's becoming a very common discussion with people. You know, I know you're a, as a pastor and, and myself working in ministry, it, it's something that we feel a calling to sort of equip other Christians to think about. And it's all, it's going to come up in conversations with our neighbors, with non-Christians. And so that, that's, what's so fascinating to me about it. I can hear the X-Files music in my head. I love the, uh, actually the reference you, you gave to me when we first started talking, you said, I think Christians in the know need to be ready to step up. Should we have a day that the world stood still moment? So uh, for our listeners that may not be familiar with that movie, can, can you kind of give a brief overview of that movie and kind of why you chose that as a metaphor for this topic? Yeah. So the, the day that the earth stood still is probably like the classic 1950s alien contact sci-fi movie. Um, I, I mean, it's your typical... Uh, black and white sci-fi movie with with chintzy special effects and props <laughs> but the narrative really captured the public imagination i think you even see echoes of it in some of what ronald reagan said to the un decades later in the 1980s about how quickly we would become unified if there was some outside threat and that movie didn't really portray contact as a threat but the UFO lands publicly, they, they make themselves publicly known. And basically the message is you, you need to stop fighting amongst yourselves, uh, the, the danger of nuclear war, you're, you're, you are a threat to yourself and everybody else. And so if you do not abandon your violent ways, your, your warlike ways as a species, then we will intervene to stop you. And it was called The Day the Earth Stood Still because... Uh, since the landing happened publicly, 
the the whole earth stood still as as the cameras were trained on the craft and the beings coming out and what it was that they had to say. So I I don't foresee that. I, I used the day the earth stood still as a metaphor for something large dropping in relation to this subject that captures the public attention, global attention, to where everybody then goes, we need to rethink our picture of reality in light of this new information that we've been exposed to. Now, I think some people were expecting that with the UAP report, the preliminary UAP report, and that's all it was. I don't think we are going to have a moment that dramatic. We can get into this later, but I think as I've watched this, and I'm sure you agree, Zach, over the last several years, this is a, an acclimatization process. It, it's sort of designed to be a slow rolling conversation where there's media hype, something big happens, then there's nothing for a month or two. Then there's another ramp up. And each time there, there's more and more information, more and more credibility associated with the information coming out. As far as our role as Christians and as pastors or as thinkers in the church is, uh, we need to realize that this is what's happening and we need to be ready to intellectually engage with whatever it is that comes out. I love that word engage uh, as the co-author of a book about engaging popular culture. That's how I'm seeing this issue. I'm highly skeptical that we will see an actual invasion of aliens or extraterrestrials or extra dimensional beings i see this issue as valuable at the popular cultural level it is a it is i would say a threat at the popular cultural level not necessarily at the existential level so i'm going to make a quick unscheduled stop by the concession stand our feature of the podcast where we just throw a few concessions uh, before we get started with the main topic as Zach mentioned earlier, this is the latest in our series within the podcast series. So if we didn't talk about your favorite alien-related thing, chances are we've already talked about it in the previous episodes, and we will link to that series in the show notes. In our last episode, for example, Zach and I talked about the possibility of extraterrestrials from a biblical worldview. How would we understand their place in the gospel? One of our theories, by the way, was that if there are sentient beings who have moral will, who have the ability to make choices created out there somewhere in the universe, there is a real possibility that they would be like demons, that they would be totally depraved and without possibility of redemption. We already know there are creatures like that. They are called demons, fallen angels. And we know that scripture says in Romans 9 and elsewhere that God has the right to make vessels prepared for destruction. His holiness is not compromised just because he doesn't give people a chance. And even Christians who accept certain end-time scenarios believe that people who do take the mark of the beast are lost. Whatever free will they had uh, is now gone. So that's a possibility. And so we're going to build on that episode here. Uh, that's our main purpose. A final concession I would give for folks who think like me, uh, who are skeptical about the accusations of conspiracy theories, I would like to point out that I think conspiracies are real, but the worst ones, it seems to me, are the ones that seem to be operating in plain sight. I may be skeptical about uh, UAP conspiracy theories, but I can compare to ones that I know are true. And the greatest conspiracy, it seems to me right now, is the conspiracy to acclimatize people to certain alternative beliefs about sexuality and identity. 
This is a real open conspiracy that people started on purpose in the 40s and 50s, building on stuff, ideas, notions that went on before then. They began with court cases. They tried to weaken definitions of marriage. And then here we are with all of the nonsense that's going on right now. Is there a similar open conspiracy going on uh, with whatever is happening with the intelligence and these flying objects? Maybe. The speculative mind can go off in many directions there. Uh, I'm already thinking, okay, what if we got two parallel conspiracies going on, you know, either driven by bad people or maybe there's demons behind it. I don't know. It would be fascinating to see if both of these come together then. And you had some idea of creatures out there in the dimensions or in the universe uh, who are urging people to become like them, to sacrifice their humanity and become some other creature or some other gender. Uh, we could go really weird with this. It is important, of course, to know that God is sovereign, that all devils are, in a sense, God's devils. He rules this creation. We do not fear these things, but we must engage these things for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. So a quick overview of where we're going to go today. We're going to talk about the actual report from the Pentagon, from the uh, Director of National Intelligence. Um, so I wrote an article about this uh, right after it came out in late June. Then we're going to talk about what are the possibilities uh, for all of these you know, UAP that the government is tracking and uh, recording and official logs now and official task forces. And then we're going to look at, you know, what, what's the intersection of this report of fantastical stories and culture from, from Christians and, and really just how does all of this fit with a biblical worldview? Are any of these a threat? And I'm just going to steal a line real quick from a book that we're going to discuss later. A character calls this topic the sum of all theological fears. So that's what really interests me in this topic because it seems to be something that it's like we're too afraid to look because of what we might find. And I, I want to look so that I see where God has an answer to this. We'll jump into that report in just a moment. But first, I want to note that military reports like this often bring us military suspense which just happens to remind me of our new sponsor for this episode, which is James R. Hannibal's military suspense novel, The Paris Betrayal from Revel Books. James, of course, in another capacity, describing his game Dragon Raid, soon to become Light Raiders. He was our guest on Fantastical Truth a few episodes ago. You can find that link in the show notes, as well as other information about this book, The Paris Betrayal, whose description reads as follows. After an intelligence operation in Rome goes sideways, Ben Calix returns to Paris to find his perfectly ordered world turned upside down. A hitman ambushes him at his flat. French SWAT tries to hem him in. This is a severance. The director has kicked him out into the cold, but why? To find answers, Ben must seek the sniper who tried to kill him, the spymaster who trained him, the doctor who once saved his life, and the teammate who killed the woman he loved. And in the midst of this search, scouring Europe for his contacts, he must still try to stop a world-altering attack. That was the story description. Here's an endorsement from best-selling author of Hunt Them Down, Simon Gervais. He says, Hannibal once again displays his dazzling prose and ability to keep even the more experienced readers guessing. Another gripping, high-octane book from one of the best thriller writers in the business. That's the endorsement from Simon Gervais, and you can find more about the Paris betrayal from Revel Books by James R. Hannibal at our show notes, lorehaven.com slash podcast, notes for episode 73. All right, so first we're going to jump into this report from the Pentagon. Colin, I'm really curious, what did you expect to be in this report? What did you think was going to be in it before it came out? 
from everything that I gathered, both listening to people like Luis Elizondo, he's the former head of ATIP. That was the prior government Pentagon program to study UAP. So everything I gathered from listening to him on podcasts, Chris Mellon, who's a former Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, and and just others, the impression I had was this is going to be brief. There will be details in the report that give indication that the government is not discrediting the subject. In other words, uh, they will give a brief report that, that says there is something here. But my expectation was just that, a brief report that is just the beginning of a conversation with Congress. Many media outlets portrayed this as the government has 180 days to tell us everything they know about UFOs. <laughs> and that was never what, what the purpose of the report was. It was to figure out a better way to catalog recent events. And this is just the preliminary report on how to do that. In some areas, it exceeded my expectations, but it was brief. Yeah. And it was interesting how yeah, you had one group of people that's like, this is going to show us everything, close-up pictures of the flying saucers, and then other people that are like, oh, it's all just going to be birds and ball lightning or something. And no one was really happy with it, is what I noticed. But I, I think you said the right phrase. It's the beginning of a conversation, and it's that entire conversation that, that really is the focus of where we're going to go today. Because as you said, it's this acclimation process. You know, whatever the government knows or whatever they want us to think they know, it's coming out in these little drip, drip, drip process. So that in itself is a very weird part of this, really. So a quick overview of this report, uh, which we'll, we'll link to my article about it and we'll link to the actual report in the show notes. But uh, the Pentagon created this actual task force that was specific to the UAP issue. And they examined 144 military encounters since 2004. Most of those were actually in the last couple of years. And out of 144, there was 143 with no explanation. 80 of those involved multiple military sensors. So not just eyewitnesses and not just videos, but radar and infrared and, and whatever else. 18 of those encounters are firmly classified as what they call other so it, it's physical objects that have unusual movement patterns, acceleration abilities, and what they call signature management. And I love that phrase. It, it basically means like stealth or cloaking or what we don't know, but they actually captured radio frequency energy on these. And, you know, these are objects that you've heard people talk about in the news that fly in really weird ways, make 90 degree turns, go 20,000 miles an hour. And, and then just disappear. And my favorite part of this is they said, we, we need pending scientific advances to even make sense of what we're seeing. So not only can we not identify them, we can't even track them or follow them or, or capture them. We can't even understand it from like a physics standpoint. And so that, that leads to some things we'll talk about. And then, as you said, Colin, this is the beginning of a report. This is the preliminary report. You know, this report says, hey, maybe we should put some more money and, and more people into this and, and collect more data and have kind of an ongoing process of, of talking about this and, and use machine learning. From everything you've read in this report, Colin, what was clear and what was just vague? Well, I found the report to basically be a smorgasbord. It said multiple conflicting things. But if you read it several times, it's basically 
saying exactly what, what, what you just outlined. So when you first open up the report, and I rolled my eyes when I saw this, uh, the, the, the first thing that it says is that you know, some of this could be due to problems with the radar, problems with, with the collection systems. Um, it says, in a limited number of incidents, UAP reportedly appeared to exhibit unusual flight characteristics. These observations could be the result of sensor error, spoofing, or observer misperception and require additional rigorous analysis. So you could just stop right there and go, oh, see, that's what we've always said. That's all this yep. is, radar clutter. Just mistakes. Just mistakes. But then, as you said, 18 of the incidents that had the unusual characteristics, if you continue on, had uh, multiple uh, multiple sensors that that picked up these same characteristics. So eyewitness, perhaps satellite with forward-looking infrared, all, all showing the same thing, triangulating upon the same object. And when you have that type of data associated with any incident, you have high confidence that it's not an error, it's not a mistake. You, you, you have multiple sensors, again, seeing the same thing. So there's objectivity behind what was witnessed. So when you go through the report, they, they do end saying, as you said, that our science might need to advance in order to understand some of this. You don't say that about clutter on the radar. They also, again, they want machine learning and a streamlined process uh, through which to, to better take in these reports and then sort through them and figure out what's going on. And they do end saying they have no indication that this is foreign technology. So at the beginning, it seems like your typical government report blowing off this subject. But as you continue to read through, especially when you get to the, I think, the fifth explanation, the fifth possibility, which is just other. Yeah. And then later language in the report seems to indicate that the majority of what they looked at really fit into that other category that isn't birds, isn't balloons, isn't radar clutter. You, you kind of got to do some reading between the lines, but they're saying this is real. It requires more study. And that's what they're asking for. If, if they wanted to be clear, they could have put out bullet points like you just outlined at the beginning of this segment. But they, they sort of made the report in a way that you have to work for it, right? And you can maybe see what you want to see in the re preliminary report. Yeah. Yep. What really stood out to me is I thought they were going to talk more in detail about the connection between these appearances, these objects, and our nuclear facilities and uh, vehicles that there seems to be an odd connection there. So they've, they've appeared over missile silos, they've appeared by our nuke subs and aircraft carriers and, and other uh, vehicles that carry those weapons, you know, and really play up the, oh, this is some kind of threat, either from a foreign actor trying to gain intelligence on our most critical systems or, or you know, it's just some unknown threat to our military. Because like, you always see that in the movies, right? You you see the aliens like go after that, blow up the Air Force base, or uh, you know, bl blow up uh, NORAD or something like that, take out our command and control centers, and, and that was how I thought that was kind of play out. But that it really didn't go into that, and that's 
you know, that's sort of the weird thing about this. There does seem to be this very strong connection between UAP and military assets, but at the same time, I don't think any of them have ever been shot at by, you know, plasma rays or something. There's no like dog fights that are happening. Even the, uh, the Navy pilot that chased the uh, Tic Tac from the, uh, the Nimitz encounter, uh, Commander Fravor, you know, the thing just kind of went around in a circle with them and then shot away. So it, it didn't really do anything. That's what really is the mysterious part of this. There was like zero speculation in this report about any of that. And as, as you said, it was very cut and dry and it, it, it kind of leaves you to your own imagination. And so part of me wonders about that. Like, are they just, is it just a kind of a bureaucratic angle of like, well, here's just the dry facts or is it, is it sort of this, you know, a lot of people have said that maybe this is a psychological operation to get us to see what we want to see for some reason or another. I do think it's a psychological operation, but people throw that word around and they assume it means something. We're in this age post-COVID where everybody is a conspiracy theorist now. <laughs> and with some of the things I see people saying, you know, I, I was in to Alex Jones right after 9-11. And uh, some of the theories I see people buying into and in the, in the evidential basis they have for it, uh, you're a bunch of amateurs, uh, right? But a PSYOP is simply that. It, it, it is analyzing people's psychology and finding a way to present information to them to lead them in a certain direction. And post-World War I with the development of propaganda, which then advertising sort of picked up on some of those techniques that intelligence agencies or the early iterations of intelligence agencies developed, um, there's overlap there. Everything's a PSYOP. Advertising's a PSYOP. I was in sales for a while. You have an angle with people. So just because there are elements of a PSYOP doesn't mean there's nothing to this and there's some nefarious plot to create a one world government on the threat of UFOs, right? It could be this is a very hard conversation to have. And so we are using all of our best resources and insights and how to present things to the public in a way that, that won't cause them to freak out you know, that could be the purpose behind these elements that look like a psyop, this drip, drip disclosure, this uh, mixing information with plausible deniability and then slowly scaling back the plausible deniability until, okay, well, no, this is real, but now I've had time to process it um, through many years of, of hearing about it in the media and I'm not freaked out about it like I would be if the president just stood up and said, ladies and gentlemen, there's unidentified flying objects, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so anybody who's, who's really looked at this disclosure process, they're basically admitting that they're doing that. Uh, Tom DeLonge in his, his nonfiction books with all of these intelligence people he's surrounded by, they say they have a strategy. He was open about it when he first said he had these contacts. It was going to be a five to seven year acclimatization process. So that UAP report was reflective of those techniques that, that many have observed for decades and how the government leaks this information out. I think what will happen, and th this might segue into things we want to touch on perhaps later in the, the podcast. And it's something that Stephen touched on earlier. I don't think the government will ever be the one to disclose anything. 
They'll disclose something is there. They'll disclose as much raw data as they can, but no speculation about what it is will ever come from the government because that's not the government's job. The government's job is to protect us. And if something has been determined not to be a threat, though it might be threatening, they want to outsource that discussion to academics, to scholars, and, and to others who, who can then lead that conversation once they legitimize it and then hand the data off. And I think that's how this is going to work out. It will transition from a government conversation once they release everything they do have and it will become a cultural conversation. And that just happened this week. So uh, Harvard astronomer, Dr. Avi Loeb, just announced uh, this past week as we record this, a $1.7 million initiative to study near-Earth, interstellar, or UAP objects that are in our skies, in, in our orbit, perhaps, or in the, gal- in the solar system. Uh, what really kicked it off was that uh, interstellar comet, or whatever you want to call it, Oumuamua, that passed through our solar system four years ago and had these really unusual characteristics that he wrote an entire book about and said, hey, maybe it's just a rock, or maybe it's an alien solar sail or some other kind of sensor uh, because it it doesn't conform at all to any of our theories about astronomy. They're going to be building this network of telescopes, and and he's made the point on interviews that, look, all the data that we can collect, we can publish immediately. The government can say what they want, but they're using classified sensors, and they have to keep that secret for national security reasons. So we're not even going to go there, but the sky is not classified. So we can we can look for anything we want, and maybe we'll find something, and, and maybe we won't. You know, my personal theory on this is that the Pentagon actually doesn't know what any of this is. That's probably my theory as well. Yeah, I I think there's some, you know, there's the theory that, oh, maybe they know it's their tech or maybe they know it's Chinese tech, but I think they have no clue at all what it is. And it's really, really hard for the government to admit that they don't know what something is, especially when that something could be technologically superior to their own, you know, military craft. Well, especially when you're paid to be in effect a materialist. If the assumptions, the worldview, presuppositions in your job, in your career are materialistic, uh, you're you're supposed to not be all about religion. Like you are a military professional, and of course, you know, lots of people in our military are faithful Christians or at least religious in non-materialistic ways. But keep that stuff off the job. Uh, we're all about just the facts here, the things we can see on radar. And, and we've talked about this before, Zach, is that this, this is an issue of presuppositions uh, that by itself seems to drag the conversation. I appreciated earlier, or earlier, Colin, where you were mentioning the idea of, of disclosure, this kind of this slow leak to people so that the conversation is happening at the cultural level. Uh, that helps me to accept this because then, I mean, that's, that's rational behavior. And I don't have to think that there's some evildoers, you know, who want aliens to invade or who want uh, Satan to corrupt people with uh, UFO teaching, although that's probably going on as well. You can explain it in terms of just plain human behavior, never attributing malice when plain bureaucracy will just as easily (laughs) explain it. Uh, Although, as I mentioned earlier, like I do believe people can do these kinds of psyops with malice. I do think that that's what happens when people are trying to get people accustomed to other ideas that would have been outrageous. You see that happening right now with the sexualityism movement. 
things that were would have been completely ridiculous, absurd, and horrible just five or ten years ago are now being bandied about as if it's the most normal, wonderful, progressive thing in the world. And if I believe that that can happen for evil intent, of course, those people think that they're heroes, then I think it can happen for benign intent. Like, man, we don't know what this stuff is. We need to just break the log jam and get that conversation out into the public. So here's how we're going to do it over five to seven years using social media and academia and other things. From all observation, you know, at least from my perspective, as I've watched this over the last few years, that's exactly what I see. Now, I could be wrong. And if, if I get evidence to the contrary, that there's some nefarious agenda, uh, of course, I will adjust my thinking and what I'm saying in, in light of that. And, and maybe it's benign right now, but, but there's bad actors who will bring it in a negative, malicious direction as far as uh, how this relates to the public good and the public trust. But that, that's what I see. I, I see a non-dogmatic conversation. I think Zach can agree with me that when we look at UFO Twitter, it really is just an open space for people to come up with all sorts of theories and, and different ideas of what this could be. And the people who are guiding the discussion, for the most part, seem to be encouraging that type of thing. Whereas what we saw with the LGBTQ agenda since the 80s, I mean, it's it's been rabidly dogmatic, right? And, and I don't really see those patterns of behavior surrounding this subject yet, at least. I think it's because there hasn't been any like hard event that would really solidify people into certain corners. Some of these other cultural trends, there's been Supreme Court cases or there's been, uh, you know, a, a terrorist attack or, or some other kind of, you know, major event that's gotten everyone's attention, like you said, that made the earth stand still. This nine-page PDF is interesting to you and I, Colin, but for the most part, for people, it's just kind of like, what? I, I'm not reading that. That's part of the acclimatization, right? Right, right. Wake me up when they land on the White House lawn or something. You know, all the same, there is this whole category of other that the government has invented here. And so there's a lot of different ways to fill that in. There's a lot of different theories floating around. That's our second segment we're going to go to. Uh, oh, by the way, about the nefarious plot, We'll have more to say about that later from a, uh, a popular Christian sci-fi novel. But right now, let's talk about this, uh, what I call the fantastical flowchart of possibilities. So this is a uh, really massive flowchart we'll have in the show notes. And it was put out by someone named Berlingoff Rasmussen uh, that I found on Twitter. And so it's called The Origins of UAP. And there's a few major categories here. There's uh, prosaic mental, physical, interdimensional, extra-dimensional, and, and a few others. So let's just kind of walk through a couple of these and let's just give our thoughts about these. And, and particularly, Colin, why we have you on is, is you've thought about this very much from a theological point of view. I, I really would love your, your thoughts about how any of these would either conflict with a biblical worldview or could actually fit into a biblical worldview. Um, so the, the first one's a softball, you know which we've talked about, the, the prosaic explanation, um, that there are just, you know, human causes of UAP, there are, or there are natural causes of UAP. So, uh, Stephen, this is the one you've kind of mentioned before that, you know, maybe this is a secret military. My, my favorite fantastical possibility of the prosaic possibilities is the breakaway uh, line here, which says like the secret space program <laughs> or a breakaway civilization or 
as I call it, a Bond villain kind of possibility. I'm, I'm down for that. I see nothing prosaic about that. I think that that's awesome and terrifying <laughs> all at once. And, and even the most benign version of that, oh, we have had anti-gravity technology since 1979. You know, Scientist X developed it, or uh, we actually had complete invisibility technology thanks to the secret experiments of Nikola Tesla. Like, that's <laughs> awesome stuff, you know, a, 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 approaching... Uh, the boundary line, you know, of, of alternate history, but suddenly alternate history becomes real. I guess they've labeled it prosaic just out of a desire to be prosaic. But I think that that is still very sci-fi cool, even before you start talking about extra dimensional or extraterrestrial beings. Yeah. Uh, Colin, St- Stephen made me think of something. Are you familiar with Operation Paperclip? Th- this would be a whole podcast just to talk yes. about that. But but that that could be a possibility here, right? Yes, certainly. And I'm on the fence about that whole subject as far as whether or not the Nazis, usually when you tie UFOs to Operation Paperclip, it's tied to the idea that the Nazis um, had gotten close to perfecting anti-gravity. So so our piece in World War II is we perfected nuclear technology, which is why, one of the reasons why we won. We would have probably won anyways, but um, it ended the war a lot quicker. But the idea is America because we're America. Right. (laughs) And uh, uh, the idea is the Nazis, they they didn't focus on nuclear tech. They were focused on anti-gravity. And so part of paperclip Operation Paperclip is where we recruited Nazi scientists after the war, absolved them of their crimes if they would work for the U.S. government. The idea is that they brought over some of this anti-gravity tech. And that explains some of this. There's even the idea that some of them escaped to South America, where they kept doing experiments and possibly um, could be. So, so that's almost Nazis becoming a breakaway civilization. Huh, right. So we're, we're definitely in, in um, conspiracy theory land yeah. when we adopt that way of thinking. So all these rocket engines are such a loud, flashy distraction, burning chemicals to get <laughs> yep. into space. What a farce. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's all, and it's always a possibility. In fact, Tom DeLonge says in his fiction series, there's there's things hidden in the fiction that he can't talk about publicly, mm. but he basically says there's things in the fiction series that are true, and the only way I could communicate is if I put it in fiction, again, for the plausible deniability. And part of his fiction series is a breakaway civilization, at least post-World War II, and related to Nazi tech is some of this. Now, the other uh, line on here is the natural possibility that there are celestial, meteorological, or optical phenomenon that we just haven't been able to make sense of yet. You know, my favorite example of this is ball lightning. I had a professor in college that witnessed ball lightning firsthand. He was in um, literally a radio shack. So I was, uh, this was a telecommunications class. And he was in the little building that's next to these giant antennas and the door was open and this little ball of glowing plasma floated in the room and just sort of did a little horseshoe and went out. And the whole time, uh, Mr. Katala was like, get back, <laughs> but don't touch the electronics because it could be attracted to that. You know, and it just went away. And then he said it, uh, I think he said it floated away and sort of like exploded or something, but no one was hurt. Nothing was damaged. Uh, but you know, these are real objects. They've been, you can find YouTube videos of them. Um, there's actually a whole great science fiction novel called ball lightning by, uh, Tsushin Leo, the author of the three body problem series. 
And, you know, maybe there's things like this that we just have not discovered yet that maybe we would need new physics to understand. I mean, this is still kind of an interesting possibility, right? Sure. Even when you look at some of the Puritans like Increase Mather, he has a book, um, I forgot the title of it, but it was Cataloging Strange Events in the Early Colonies in the Puritan Era. And he had a category for things that are demonic or supernatural, but then also what was preternatural. And those are things that are almost the space in between that could just be bizarre, fantastical aspects of the natural world that we don't understand yet. But look, it shows God's glory because we would expect God to create a universe where there's all sorts of strange things that that boggle our mind that don't quite seem Amen. like one thing or another. And we need to be open to that category as well, for sure. And um, there's nothing about that that would be unbiblical. Um, the Bible doesn't teach Newtonian physics. Um, mm-hmm. The world is probably a very weird place, weirder than we think. Yeah. So for our second category here, it's mental causes. So these could be neurological, psychological, psychosocial. Uh, these are things like false beliefs or you know things like schizophrenia or or just trauma to the brain and and just things that people have come to believe and like you said they they've the, the spaces in between they've filled in the gaps with their own imagination hypnosis is one of these so there's a lot of you know ufo abduction researchers who use hypnosis to try to help people remember things that's very questionable but there's one Possibility here that's very interesting to me, and it's telepathy. Colin, I had a very strong interest in the New Age before I was a Christian too. The idea of telepathy, the idea of psychokinesis—you know, these like mental powers—you know, I thought these for sure existed. Well, I, I became a Christian and I put all that away. But at the same time, I look at very interesting things in the Bible, where, for example, Joseph goes to sleep and an angel talks to him <laughs> in a dream. The supernatural beings that God has made somehow have the ability to interface directly with our minds. So just to be really clear, I'm talking about Joseph in the New Testament, husband of Mary, when an angel told him, you know, don't divorce Mary. So somehow there is this ability to talk directly mind to mind. Now that was from an angel to a human. Could it happen human to human? Could it happen machine to human or, or, or some other way? You know, th- this is your a, mind. Yeah. <laughs> My thoughts to your thoughts. Well, I'll, I'll preface before I answer that question and kind of give you my, my thoughts. Um, I, I preface by saying occult practices are absolutely forbidden in Scripture, and we should not pursue any of them. But the, Amen the, times 10. The, the question then becomes, is there any natural, is it part of the natural order where we can sense things beyond the five senses? And, and where maybe certain people are more prone, just like certain people are creative, whereas others are more logical and, and prone to be good at math. Are, are there other people who might, if there is a sixth sense, be more prone to just naturally sense things? I don't see a, a biblical reason why you, you should deny such a thing if someone says that they've experienced. We've all heard these anecdotes, right? That uh, mom wakes up in the middle of the night with her heart palpitations. And that was right when her son got in a car accident. Christians will often say, well, that was the Holy Spirit 
that that must have done that some sort of miraculous insight I was given and that's a possibility but the holy spirit is also behind all of creation and god created a a coherent interconnected order that's part of this whole presuppositional argument that we presuppose that there's regularities in nature that there's coherence in nature let's say at the quantum level in in my brain with all the neurological activity going on we know with quantum physics that all particles are intertwined does sometimes you know as some people theorize can can that reality bleed into our consciousness where maybe we become aware of something from a distance just through an instinct i, I don't see why why that's impossible but i, I think what ha- happens is people then try to pursue that is a primary mode of knowledge, and then they get into occult practices, then they open themselves up to other things that will come through. And, and I think that's why there's an explicit warning in Scripture. And, it, you know, as I mentioned in the beginning, having been into the New Age, uh, that that is what, what happens. And it yeah. is a big part of this phenomenon, or at least things that are associated with this phenomenon you know, psychic powers and, and opening yourself up. And then before you know it, entities mm-hmm. are showing up or strange phenomenon showing up. There's a very, uh, I'm not going to name them, but there's a very famous uh, figure in this whole UFO sphere that uh, teaches people to summon these entities. Oh no, no. Deuteronomy 18 violation on the court. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yep. And uses uh, meditation and technology and you know, even the CIA at one point was studying this whole idea of remote viewing. You know, there's a ton of stuff you can find out there about that. And so, again, it's interesting that the government sees some kind of angle into this um, this sphere. And, and as you said, Colin, you know, God created a coherent universe, and somehow our consciousness and our body are connected. And it's it's things that we still can't quite make sense of. I mean, scientists don't even know how the mind actually works apart from the brain, like how our consciousness works. And so, yeah, th- there is a spiritual side of us, and that leads us to the uh, the next category here. Well, actually, I'm going to skip one, which is uh, extra-dimensional. So this is the idea that there are incorp- incorporeal entities, or there is some uh, r- religious uh, aspect to this. And um, there, there's a line drawn to um, Diana uh, Pasolka, who wrote a book called American Cosmic. Have you read that book? Colin? Uh, yeah, I've read it twice now and I I did have, what's kind of the, and what's kind of the big idea from that book? The big idea from that book is that I think human beings have always reported contact with non-human intelligences and it's always been associated with religion, but we, we filter those experiences through are presuppositions. And she catalogs two individuals that she gives. She, she puts them under false names, but you can look up and find out who they are. It's very well known. Who, who claim to be in contact with entities and who are involved with, with the government and uh, the realm of intelligence. Um, and, and they receive... I, yeah. And then she also shows how the contact some people do have with these entities spreads out to the wider culture and influences the the thinking of of mass culture and then also how additional filters are put up 
about those contact experiences that that alter the way people perceive okay what, what was that an angel an alien right so it's it's a religious experience that gets filtered both by the people who experience it and by the larger culture that hears those reports and and her book kind of shows how that that has happened in the past and is happening right now around this subject I think there's a lot of these on here. You know, even Jacques Vallée kind of acknowledges that there could be this like spiritual trickster element, like a basically a demonic element. And and he's a secularist that talks about that there is something very deceptive about this. It's like, hmm, let's see, deceptive, uh, non-human, um, not exactly physical. Yeah, I, I think I know a category to put that in, right? Right. But um, there, there's two categories here I actually want to drill down for our, to kind of end this segment, because I think these are the ones that give Christians the most trouble. And it's the idea that, that these are physical nuts and bolts spacecraft piloted by physical extraterrestrials from other planets. Um, either that have, uh, you know, there's this idea that they're actually crypto terrestrials that they've been here all along, or they have just, they're visiting us. Um, or it's, it's not even, Maybe it's not even like biological entities, but like a machine intelligence that were created by biological beings somewhere it's else. It's V'ger from <clears> Star <throat> yeah. Trek, the motion picture. Oh, okay. See, I haven't, I don't know if I've actually ever seen the original Star Trek uh, movie. I've seen a bunch of them, but I don't think I've seen that one. Um, but this is the idea of non-human beings or machinery created by non-human beings that's here in our atmosphere, in orbit. How do we make sense of this from a biblical worldview, if this is the possibility? If, if you look at the history of the church, uh, this is a subject that theologians have actually considered even before the modern period, when we got into space travel and all of that. Um, in the medieval period, there were many theologians who were adamant that God did not create an empty universe. He created a full universe. And so the assumption was that there was life elsewhere and possibly intelligent life, but it doesn't change the fact that the drama of redemption centers upon earth and humanity. Amen. And, and it does not necessarily mean that the other life would be made in God's image. And you see other thinkers that, that probably people would be surprised by. Um, Thomas Chalmers, who was a Scottish Presbyterian theologian in the uh, 19th century, I believe, he was adamant that there was most likely intelligent life throughout the universe. That was an apologetic argument he made against Thomas Paine, because Thomas Paine as a deist said, okay, we, we've discovered all these different solar systems, look at all that we know from science. Most likely, God created life out there. What, did Jesus go to die on all these other planets as well? And Chalmers' response was he wouldn't have to because they're not necessarily made in God's image. They weren't under the covenant of works like Adam was. And so uh, the work of Christ would be unnecessary for them. Maybe there's some other purpose that God has for them in, in, in the created order, but this wouldn't at all overthrow the biblical narratives. So if we were to discover hard proof of extraterrestrial life, I don't think that'd be a problem. Intelligent extraterrestrial life, it wouldn't necessarily be a problem. But I think the question we're always going to ask is, 
well, who are they? What do they believe? What are they saying about the nature of reality? And um, I think that's where the issue would arise. And until that happens, it's it's speculative as far as whether or not that'd be a problem for the biblical worldview. But I, I think, as you alluded to earlier, even if there are other intelligent life out there and they have wrong the- theological ideas, well, maybe they're just wrong. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're right. Um, again, it's it's all speculative at this point, but I don't think it's ipso facto a problem for the biblical worldview. That's a perfect segue for one I wanted to talk about for our third section here is how do we see this topic of UFOs, aliens, fiction in the Bible sort of coalescing? And you talked about the image of God, Colin, and that was a, a big theme I picked up from a novel I just finished called The Facade by Dr. Michael Heiser. And this, this has been a book that's been out for a little while now. Uh, he mostly does uh, nonfiction podcasts. He works for Logos Bible Software and does a lot of research into ancient languages, particularly Hebrew. I'm not going to spoil too much about the the book or the story, but he makes this point that the image of God can remain unique to humanity if intelligent extraterrestrials exist and even if they visit us because the image of God is not about a function of humanity but a role given to humanity. His argument is that often we associate the image of God with things like intelligence or things like, you know, a moral decision-making power or consciousness or whatever. Imagination, the ability to create things. Yeah. Yes. Right. And his argument is that actually the image of God is a role that's given to us to be God's representatives on earth and perhaps to other alien species. I've talked about a novel called The Sparrow that picks that up about Jesuit missionaries that go to Alpha Centauri on a mission trip when they find aliens there. Um, And you see this actually in Ray Bradbury's um, short story, The Illustrated Man, where these uh, astronauts go to another planet and they find out that Jesus has just visited there. Uh, This is a book recommended to me by uh, Steve Lobby, the publisher of Enclave. And um, they find out they had just missed Jesus. And he didn't go there to die. He just went there to teach and he healed people and then he left. And one of the astronauts says, man, I got to stay here and find out more about this. The other astronaut's like, I'm going to go find him and like, I guess, catch him or something. I don't know. Um, and so they get in this big argument about what to do about this, that the fact that Jesus is real and he's gone to all these other planets. Yeah. So what, what do you guys think about that? That uh, the image of God isn't, um, that, that it's still unique to humans, but other species could share a lot of human characteristics. Well, we could do the same thing with artificial intelligence. We could make something that has a lot of human characteristics, and yet it wouldn't be human. And the way one of my professors in seminary described it when we were going through anthropology and creation, the way he put it is that the animals, right, don't have souls. And yet, I love my dog. My dog seems to have a personality. Uh, You look into his eyes and there's something there, and yet we don't believe there's a soul there. We believe that when he dies, he he will die. I mean, that's that's the majority report from Christian history. So we think about animals almost like a biological form of artificial intelligence, even the higher animals that exhibit Hmm. some levels of intelligence. So why can't God construct or create something similar on another planet that might mirror personality and other things, but they are not necessarily 
they don't even have souls, let alone being made in God's image. As far as defining what the image of God is, I, be, as a Presbyterian, um, I do agree with the shorter catechism when it says, how did God create man? God created man, male and female, after his own image and knowledge, righteousness and holiness with dominion over the creatures. So there you see um, we're made male and female. So that's, again, we see that under attack with with the sexuality stuff going on in our culture. But after his own image and knowledge, righteousness and holiness with dominion over the creatures. So that that's sort of the, the definition of the image of God, according to the confession. Um, but those aren't just capabilities. Those are also capabilities in function, which is to know God, to, to reflect God out into creation, having dominion over the creatures. So, so there is an essential element to it, but it is also functional. Hence why when, when we fell into sin, we remain in the image of God, and yet we, we bent that, that function. That's what sin is, right? Rather than loving God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, we're curved in on ourselves. So that's how I understand the image of God. And, and I could think of, again, an AI system that could probably outperform us, and yet we would say it's not made in God's image. So why, why couldn't God create something similar? And, and I wouldn't see a theological problem with that. Yeah, I actually think that the discovery of intelligent life bolsters the idea of creationism. You know, it used to be that Christians were kind of afraid of finding aliens or or even finding exoplanets that were habitable. Maybe there's even no life. It's just it life could exist there. And I, I think this idea used to really scare a lot of Christians because, well, if we discover aliens, that that proves evolution is true. Uh, because that was sort of the agenda from a lot of the evolutionists of saying that, like, but I think that's a trick. And because now there's even, there's an article I can link to from popular mechanics that says intelligent life really can't exist anywhere else. And this is a, you know, a, a secular magazine that says, look, we don't even know how life got started here because according to our best theories, it would have taken more time to evolve than the earth has been around. And so how, we don't even know how it happened here. If it happened anywhere else, that completely blows our ideas out of the water. So I, I actually think we should try to find intelligent life because I think it, it, it would sort of disprove evolution because it's like, okay, you could win the lottery once, but if you win the lottery a thousand times, uh, maybe it's rigged. I don't know what plans God would have for all these other species, but I, I think a big component of this is that part of why this is such a, a frightening topic is what if these aliens are superior to us? And what if they're hostile? Well, we've already been through that in biblical history, right? The, the Jewish people were occupied by the Roman Empire for centuries. And yet that is where the Messiah came. Like that is where God chose to become incarnate. And so that did not at all mess up God's plans that his chosen people were outmaneuvered by this superior group. And so, yeah, if there's some kind of alien invasion, well, I just have to assume it's part of God's plan. Like so many other stories throughout biblical history are, are similar to that. Yeah, I, I would, I would agree with that. I, I definitely think it would provoke a lot of questions if there was like an independence day scenario. Okay. So how does this factor mm -hmm. into biblical history and redemptive history? 
Um, is Jesus going to come back now? Because how, how are we going to defeat these things? Um, um, <laughs> that would be pretty awesome, honestly. You know, yeah. Jesus just snaps his fingers. It is right? a bit of a missed opportunity in the Left Behind series. I mean, the series is interesting <laughs> it is. as it could be if you believe in that perspective, or even if you don't. Uh, the only thing it was missing was Armies of the Aliens. Yep. Yes. Let's have a remake in about 15 or 20 years, uh, endorsed by, but not written by Jerry B. Jenkins, and instead have more aliens. Uh, the, the, the fifth trumpet judgment and the sixth trumpet judgment are calling out for extraterrestrial representation there. Yeah. Amen. So any final thoughts, Colin, about you know, how Christians can continue to think about this topic, engage with it, it w- whether or not they're on UFO Twitter with us, but uh, as they see these reports in the news, it's you know, a water cooler discussion. How do we move forward? with these uh, disclosures that are happening and yet hang on to a, uh, a biblical worldview. Well, I, I think that as we've mentioned a couple times in this podcast, this is a cultural conversation. Uh, I've heard some people say, well, we need to have a UFO apologetic. Uh, I don't know if that's the appropriate term because apologetic is, is for definitive things with definitive answers, right? What's the apologetic answer to Jehovah's Witnesses. This topic is not that narrow, and yet that doesn't mean it's any less threatening or relevant to the Christian engaged with cultural conversations. I do think with this acclimatization process, it will come to the point where it is very significant in shaping how people think and then shaping how they even respond to the Christian worldview. Well, you know, what What about all this stuff that we're hearing about aliens and UFOs and all of that? So I recommend to people just track with the cultural conversation. Uh, I've watched this come from sort of the shadows five years ago. And just leading up to this summer, everybody was talking about it. I had members mm-hmm. in my congregation approaching me about it. Um, my colleagues talking about their congregants having questions. And we're still at the very beginning of this. So I, I think the best thing you can do is, is be well-versed in some of these subjects we've, t- we've touched on, creation versus evolution. That's relevant to this discussion. What is the image of God? That's relevant to this discussion. Okay, how do we really think of the spirit realm beyond just, okay, there's demons out there that can tempt us to sin? And how much of the church's experience and reflection upon the spirit realm in history where people previously took that stuff a lot more seriously, how much of that can inform some of what we are seeing and what people are witnessing and reporting as UAP? Where's the intersection there? So I think engaging in the conversation from a grounded biblical perspective is really what what Christians need to be doing as this discussion develops. And just know it provokes big questions. So it is an opportunity to talk about big questions with people. And beyond that, yeah, yeah, UFO Twitter is a great, great place to kind of be up to speed on what's happening and what's going to happen soon. All these people have connections to the intelligence community. A lot of them do, and they leak things ahead of time and give hints as to, you know, what, what sorts of things are going to be coming out next. So if you kind of want to remain on top of it, that's a place to get engaged. And by the way, it's, it's that whole leak process and, and just kind of slowly acclimating people that if, if there's any sort of evil spiritual force behind things that I'd, I'd almost peg it there, maybe not quite. I think Stephen is right that there's 
lot more likely to be a human reason behind that. I mean, I've, I've heard these kind of people say, well, we don't want to blow any way, you know, blow people's minds away. But I actually think what they're trying to do is, is sort of soften the blow because, you know, you've got people like Tom DeLong that are creating entirely different mythologies, very different creation mythologies using the UFO topic. You've got Ridley Scott putting out movies like Prometheus and Alien Covenant, which suppose that Earth was seeded by an alien race and then sort of used as this uh, biological weapons experiment lab or something. You know, these are entirely opposing worldviews of how humanity came to be and, and, and again, what the image of God is. And, And it is interesting how a lot of these people are deciding to put those ideas forward through stories. He, Tom DeLonge doesn't want to put everything he knows or supposedly knows or has been told into his nonfiction. He's going to weave it into a story. And so, yeah, we have to read stories with discernment and then put out our own stories. And that's what I appreciate about uh, Michael Heiser putting out the facade, you know, and, and he has a very unique spin on it with uh, not just, uh, you know, Area 51 and not just flying saucers, but supernatural beings uh, being involved in, in sort of breakthrough human technology being involved, but, but, but there being a spiritual agenda behind it all. And yet God working even throughout it all, you know, Stephen, we, we could talk about the, the Nephilim and there's a lot of books that kind of connect that to, uh, to this topic. Maybe that's another podcast, but this is where I, I see a huge opening for Christians in this space. Uh, as thinkers, as speakers, as even as you said, Colin, as apologists, you know, maybe not necessarily an apologist about a Christian view of UFOs, but just a, a Christian view of everything else that that sort of dilutes some of the the hot and heavy claims from the, the UFO world. But I, I see a huge opportunity here for Christians to tell stories because of how story is being used to put forward these ideas. Absolutely. And th- that's where I think uh, you you guys and your audience are kind of key in where maybe some of this could go in the future as far as the Christian discussion is. Uh, you hit the nail on the head that, that Tom and others are going for the storytelling route. Even the drip drip is almost a story that they're telling yeah. in real time, making fiction become fact. And uh, I think the, uh, the concept of Christians entering into that realm and into the realm of science fiction to expand people's imagination related to these topics and yet have it relate to the reality of God, sort of like what Lewis does in the space trilogy. We need more of that because that's where people go astray is this really captures your imagination and your sense of wonder. And then, then people go, well, this is much more interesting than the Bible. So helping people to expand their, their theological imagination around some of these discussions, I think, is needed. Well, we're very glad to engage in this exploration effort with you. It's great to meet you for this episode. Uh, maybe we'll have more, because obviously this is not our, our end point for this conversation. So, Colin, it was really great talking to you in real time. Uh, you know, you being there in Reno, Nevada as a pastor, I, I'm praying that one day you will be the first church of Area 51, because it's, it's not too far from there. You're a lot closer to there than I am. Where can our listeners uh, engage with you, like on Twitter or elsewhere? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. My Twitter name is Desert Rev, and I occasionally post theological subjects and I interact with the UFO Twitter people. 
Um, so you can follow me there. And of course, you can find me on Facebook and on Instagram, just under my name, Colin Samuel. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of our discussion, for example, about the Imago Dei, uh, you can pick up on that in our episode 63, Did God Create Aliens and Would Jesus Need to Save Them? Uh, we go through several theories there and then compare with the concepts of angels and demons, you know, creatures that we do know exist. Scripture doesn't mention extraterrestrials, but we know that angels and demons exist. And we know that, yes, they do operate according to some other, not another gospel, but angels never fell and demons did fall. They will stay fallen. We're not told about any gospel redemption chances for demons. And some of that may apply to other aliens, or it may be something like my personal theory is that if there are creatures out there, they do not bear God's image. They are more like animals and they're not part of that redemption process. They're in fact part of the creation that God has called human beings to steward as his representatives, as bearers of his image. So that's my theory, but I'm curious, gentle listeners, what is your theory? Email us at podcast at lorehaven.com or follow us on the social. Send us a message there. We are Lorehaven Mag on Facebook and Instagram and then at Lorehaven on Twitter. You can also send a feedback note by going to lorehaven.com slash podcast and click on the form, the feedback form for this episode or for the podcast in general. Fantastical truth. Well, we got a great note here from listener Stephen S. who tuned into episode 13, which was what if Jesus promised to redeem not just his people, but his creation. And Stephen had this to say, quote, after listening to this podcast, I was wondering about talking animals or even nature itself talking after the creation is redeemed. I think of the talking serpent in the garden, Balaam's talking donkey, and Jesus said the rocks would cry out in praise if others didn't. Will there be talking animals after our resurrection? Part of me hopes so, end quote. What a segue, because if you are a talking beast, to use the Narnian parlance, then you would have to have some sort of sentience. Would you then be morally responsible with an intelligence like a human? Maybe that's why that doesn't happen now, but who knows? After Christ returns, perhaps animals could be given that level of intelligence like the serpent had in the Garden of Eden. Uh, and they would still count as creatures over whom humanity has responsibility, even as Jesus rules over us. For more about that, you can actually find there's a really great article by Randy Alcorn, the author of Heaven, which is really actually about the new heavens and new earth. And that article we'll link in the show notes is called Might Some Animals Talk on the New Earth? Alcorn, I've found, is a pretty solid voice about afterlife issues, as well as several other areas of doctrine. And uh, he engages with this, I think, uh, with the parameters shaped by Scripture, uh, but uh, allows some, uh, some scriptural speculation as well. Next on Fantastical Truth, last month, the Ark Encounter attraction by Answers in Genesis near Cincinnati in the United States announced that they would build the Tower of Babel. Not a replica, of course. We already have too much cultural confusion, but an exhibit dealing with the topic of racism as well. I'm looking forward to this. After all, Answers in Genesis has already built a version of Noah's Ark itself in addition to their creation museum. And in our next episode, we will talk with Tim Chaffee. He's not only a biblical apologetics expert, but one of the creative architects of Ark Encounter. Meanwhile, whether or not you've been abducted by aliens or have read the report or engaged with the conspiracy theories, make sure that you are taking every thought captive for Christ as you avoid any possible captivity by aliens as we continue to seek and find God's fantastical truth. <laughs>